Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thanks for tuning in to Around the Coin. Today, I interview Ryan Lee, the founder and CEO of Nautical Commerce. Nautical Commerce is a marketplace enablement platform. Specifically, they build software so that marketplace founders can get up and running with their ideas quickly. Ryan's belief, which I was slow to accept, but I do now, is that marketplaces underneath the hood operate very similarly to each other. And Nautical is creating the software as a service platform so marketplaces can focus on the tip of the iceberg and let Nautical handle all the back-end logistics. We talked about how they're building it, what they've observed in the market, and where things are going. Very much enjoyed this conversation with Ryan. If you do too, please like, share, tweet around the coin. We're really trying to grow the number of podcasts that we do per week and the quality of the interviews. So really appreciate your support for listening. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ryan Lee. All right. We got the uh, world famous payment geek, Ryan Lee. Uh, Ryan, why, why, let's just kick it off with uh, Nautical Commerce. You, you're building this uh, SaaS payment marketplace. What are you up to? Yeah, um, you know we uh, we built um, we built Nautical Commerce uh, because marketplace technology has been out of reach. You know, it's it's really not very accessible. And you know, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, after, after probably spending five to seven years, um, at the intersection of, of, you know, commerce, fintech and logistics, uh, I realized that, you know, this specialized skill set uh, could be applied by, you know, really, uh, productizing the, the, the tech and the expertise. And so we, uh, we did that, um, and uh, built nautical commerce around, you know, the idea of being able to stand up a marketplace as easy as you can stand up a commerce store with, you know, one of the players like big commerce or Shopify. All right. Stand up a marketplace as easy as Shopify. So a marketplace presumably being, hey, I want to connect. Obviously, the drivers comes to mind with Uber and Lyft being big marketplaces. Um, what would be examples of marketplaces that either currently do or could foreseeably in the near term operate on Nautical? You know, I'm glad you brought up Uber. Uh, because, you know, it's interesting, most people, when they think marketplace, they immediately kind of default to Amazon. Um, but at a fundamental level, uh, you know, the transaction and, you know, the the operational mechanics are the exact same 
uh, regardless of whether it's Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, Convoy, which is a freight marketplace, um, or even Apple's app, uh, 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 you know, app store. Um, you know, effectively what you do is you're bringing on a vendor. Uh, they've got to be able to be vetted. Um, you've got to be able to allow them to list their products or services. Um, and then ultimately, you know, be able to match, you know, buyers with the sellers, um, settle that transaction, and ultimately pay out your providers. And so, you know, what, what we've done is we've built the engine that can power all of these marketplaces, believe it or not. Um, because, you know, again, the transaction is fundamentally the same. Where it's different are the nuances in how you handle the delivery of that, right? It's the mechanism by which the buyer comes in and, and purchase it, right? In, in the Uber case, they do it through an app, right? But on the Amazon case, generally they're doing it through the web or, you know, a app that's really just a, you know, veneer for the web. Um, and so it, it's really, where the, the uniqueness comes in is the buying experience, not the operations. The operations, which is, you know, I like to say uh, every marketplace is kind of like tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is the buying experience. That's the unique part. Um, the rest of it, you know, everything that lives underneath that part um, is is more or less the same across all marketplaces. Oh, interesting. So, wh- okay, uh, where do I want to take this? Are there, what what would be, types of companies or if you can name them the the exact company that is operating on nautical today yeah so we we have a couple of different uh uh, companies that come to mind right one of them is a freight marketplace um very similar to convoy just very specific um and 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 focusing on a very specific niche uh they're matching uh carriers with uh shippers um and facilitating a transaction that more or less you know expedites um you know, what you would normally call brokerage type freight. Um, we, we also have another multi-brand customer that what they've done is they've seen the power of, of Nautical and they have three unique brands, three or four unique brands. Uh, and what they've done is they have uh, individual websites for each one of these brands and they centralize all of the order management uh, in the Nautical backend. Um, and, and, and again, it functions somewhat similar to a marketplace because each one of these brands acts as a seller, um, or a retailer. Interesting. Uh, so when you started this business, which is not that old, right? You've been only at it a few years, two years, that sound two years now. Yeah. Uh, was there a uh, realization that you had at that point that technology, because if you rewind the clock a little bit, marketplaces, um, aren't that they are old and they're not old at the same time. I, I feel like the web 2.0 marketplace catalyzed by Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, you know, the, these big name brand companies at this point, uh, they're, the, the, I think of their core value proposition is really the technology stack that they built. The Airbnb experience is super customized to the Airbnb, you know, desires of the buyers and sellers, the hosts and the guests. Same thing for Uber and and the overlap, if I'm laying over Airbnb and Uber, obviously you can pick many different examples, but they feel quite a bit different. Uh, there's certainly a credit card that gets charged and a payment that gets sent. But if you go one level below that, then it's, hey, I want to, re- I want to make a reservation and the reservation can look different. Uh, where did you, how far do you go down the stack of desires uh, of say buyers and sellers, guests and hosts, drivers and passengers, where you're like, this is just, this is just too different. 
uh, where, you know, I can make a reservation, I can make a request for a reservation or a request to book. Then, then in the case of Airbnb, there has to be a feature to confirm that the host sometimes has the ability to say no or yes, based on their desire. Where in the case of Uber, I guess they, they do. They say, okay, I accept that request and then they deliver on it. So that they drive there. Uh, like, uh, yeah. Tell me how you sort of parse out where the levels of abstraction across different marketplaces are just are just untenable to build from a technology technology standpoint. No, Mike, I, I'm I'm smiling because I I could see you having that epiphany uh, that I had uh, about two years ago when we first started this. You know, to be candid, when we built this, we were building a product marketplace uh, platform, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, imagine you know, like maybe a Shopify marketplaces where you could, you know, click to deploy a platform near instantly and and go from there. And just, you know, by way of background, the reason why this came up is, you know, from 2016 on, you know, uh, uh, shortly after my, my stint at Apple, you know, I met with, you know, many of the Fortune 500 and they were all talking about the same problem. They were building marketplaces, but these were two to three year projects and 15 to $20 million spends, you know, these capital projects that many of them ended in tears. Uh, and, and, you know, I was being brought in, uh, because of my expertise in payments. And so, you know, the, the, you know, you asked a very interesting question about, you know, the uniqueness of each marketplace really it comes down to, is it a durable asset, uh, that's being sold, uh, which means it's reused, um, by the, you know, buyers in the marketplace. And, you know, let's think Airbnb, a room, a car in, in Uber for drivers, uh, and, and riders, right? Um, you know, or is it something that gets sent to them? Like in an Amazon situation where it's a product, I buy it, maybe it's an Xbox or a PlayStation, it gets sent to me. Nobody else gets to use that because I, I, you know, I earn it. Fundamentally though, uh, you know, all of them have to an extent logistics, all of them have payments, all of them have an order. Um, and there's a commission ascribed to it. Uh, the sellers are generally under some level of service level, uh, commitment that is in their contract. Um, Every seller on the platform is under some kind of contract with the marketplace, which functions, which functions as merchant of record, um, in, in payment geeks terms. Um, and so, you know, think about, you know, Uber, your, your reservation time, like, uh, versus like an Airbnb is much smaller, right? You might have the car for 15 minutes, but, but that car can't be occupied technically, um, by another rider, unless you're doing the shared rides, right? Uh, um, but technically, right, it's being used. Uh, it cannot be oversubscribed by many, uh, uh riders. A room at Airbnb, let's hope, uh, doesn't get double booked, right? Um, and, and in that case, you know, you have it for a block of time. Again, these are just durable, durable assets. Um, in a freight marketplace, the carrier, and the truck, the driver, right, um, generally cannot be double booked. Um, you know, and I, I say that in full truckload, not, you know, necessarily less than truckload, but, um, you know, I say that because it's very similar to Uber. It's very similar to Airbnb. Um, and let's think about the app stores, right? Apple's app store, you know, Google's play, um, and Amazon's, uh, market, app, you know, developer marketplace. You know, you've got to onboard a developer. You've got to localize the app in the language of the buyer, right? Um, it needs to be offered in every country. You have to apply taxes. Um, you have to do the payment. You capture it. You know, there's order, and then ultimately the commission payout. It's the exact same across every marketplace. The only thing that differs, you know, uh, technically, is really the buying experience, um, and whether or not it's a 
you know, durable good, um, a service. A service is really just a person, <laughs> you know, um, generally, you know, you're, you're getting someone's time. Um, and a lot of times they can't be double booked for the same amount of time, right? All right. I'm with you so far. It does. I still have this like splinter in my mind where I'm thinking that one of two things has to be true that the product is, is not, this is not like picking on nautical, just the, the no, no, absolutely. concept of it. Uh, like a marketplace as a service product has to, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a launch ramp. Like it, you use it to get out the ground. You can quickly go, you get product market fit. And then because you're in some vertical with some specific need, there's going to be a point at which you're like, oh, these guys just don't have what I need to continue my development because you're, you're building effectively horizontally. You're, you're, you're satisfying as many possible problems that marketplace founders would have when they start. And so you either say as nautical, Hey, we're, we're going to be a launch ramp. We're going to make signing up and, and transitioning off as easy as possible. Or you say, we're just going to pick a few verticals and, and make them build out as many features as possible with the presumption that, you know, five, 10 years from now, we'll just have, we'll have tons and tons of features for as many different, uh, marketplaces potential as possible. Does that resonate with you or do, am I missing something? Oh, a hundred percent. Uh, and, and. You know, the interesting part was we didn't realize the versatility of the platform until we were approached by a couple of these marketplaces that said, hey, can you power our app store? Um, you know, there was a marquee Silicon Valley app store that I think many people on this podcast have used, um, you know, that, that came to us and needed us to help them, right? You know, they had 18 different platforms uh, running their current marketplace. And when they looked at the, what I call nautical engine, uh, you know, they realized that, you know, they could probably get that down to maybe three systems with nautical powering the majority of it. So I, I want to step back and elevate to maybe a, a 20,000 mm -hmm. foot view. Um, you know, I agree with you uh, directionally that um, there, there absolutely would have to be some customization and some unique pieces, but we took more of an ERP approach to the way we built the platform. And so if you think about it, ERPs are pretty generic. I mean, you know, there, there's a distributor who sells flooring that's using the exact same ERP that a software company in Silicon Valley is using. And it works, right? Uh, because they're able to plug in custom fields and they're able to get it to do what they need it to do. They don't go to them and say, oh, I can't use your ERP because you don't help Silicon Valley companies, right? I mean, I know NetSuite customers that, that go the gambit. Um, and the interesting finding that we had was that marketplaces, um, you know, the transaction is fundamentally the same. You know, you have to do KYV and compliance checks on your vendors um, in order to do payouts. Um, and that, again, is an order of magnitude more difficult. This is the fintech part. What we like to say, and, and Mike, I think you, you've run both a marketplace and maybe even a commerce store, but in commerce, it's relatively easy. You just have to accept payments. You have to have a bank account. You get, you get the deposits, right? Marketplace is an order of magnitude more difficult because if you're paying someone out, you have to issue a payout and you have to make sure you're not paying someone who is on a sanctioned entity list. You have to make sure you're issuing tax forms now for them. Uh, you know, you have to withhold taxes now, um, with the governments, you know, coming in and saying, you know, Amazon's too big and, and, uh, we've, we've now forced, uh, marketplace operators to own that responsibility, uh, to make the IRS whole. And so, you know, this is the fintech component of a marketplace. And so how is commerce different from a marketplace is we like to say, 
you know, commerce is just one third of what a marketplace is. A marketplace really is at the intersection of commerce, fintech, and logistics. And the fintech part includes compliance, right? It, it includes the payout, uh, you know, component. And if you're really sophisticated, like most of these marketplaces, they actually embed what you'd call a payment orchestration layer. And I can totally geek out there. But, you know, if you think about it, the back end, the, the, the uh, back office operations of a marketplace are fundamentally the same. It's the buying experience that differs and it's delivery of the good, you know, whether it's a service, whether it's a durable good or, or a room, whether it's a doctor's office visit, you know, um, and you're matching, you know, providers or even freelancers like Fiverr, um, or, you know, it's an app store and you're delivering it. That's where the nuance comes in, right? It's the buying experience and the delivery of the good. All right. But so the back office is the same. So what's, what's the, when you, when you look at this, uh, business model, we'll just yeah. like broadly describe it as that. What, what's the daunting part and a little bit of context. I, I, uh, I have these memories, uh, not so fond memories of building my first startup, which was a point of sale system in 2013. And we were specifically catering to uh, small and mid-sized apparel stores that had multiple locations. So it's pretty specific. And we would build out features for them because roughly they had the same amount of SKUs. You know, they yep. had variations in the SKUs, small, medium, large, maybe blue, red, purple for different colors of shirts and things. And and the product itself, the innovation was that it was on an iPad and web, and web-based, so you could bring it to multiple locations, kind of like what Square is today. And in our minds, we're like, oh, well, the back office functionality is, is all the same. There's just SKUs, reconciliations, payments, customers, and you know, there's, you can bolt on emails and all that sort of stuff. But today, even so, the point of sale software market remains super fragmented because if you're a bike it shop, is. Or if you're a convenience store or a grocery store or an apparel store or sunglasses shop, you just, you have such different needs in handling returns and handling variations of SKUs and handling lost items or all these things. And I, I, uh, I, I, I'm thinking, okay, could you, why couldn't you do this same approach for point of sale? Is there a, maybe a technology innovation that sort of happened in web two that makes it possible to do today that wasn't possible then? Um, do you taking the, taking maybe taking the example of the point of sale space, do you see the parallel there where you're like, oh yeah, of course there's, there's an opportunity to do it. Or do you see it being fundamentally different between point of sale software and, uh, marketplaces? Yeah, I think point of sale is a little more difficult. Um, you know, actually I would say a lot more difficult, you know, we're, we're pure play, um, software, right? Um, whereas point of sale, you have to, you have to integrate some level of hardware, right? Um, and you know, when you're a marketplace and you're online, you know, you get the advantage of card not present type providers and stuff. And they're fairly, you know, straightforward to integrate. In your case, you have to integrate, you know, hardware. And maybe you were capturing the payments directly and you had some hardware device or reader. Um, you know, that creates a level of complexity. It's interesting. The back office, you're not, you're not uh, wrong that uh, the back office is the same. It, it isn't that their process is exactly the same, right? How they resolve you know, those, those functions, whether it's a return, what their, what their, um, you know, policies are, whether it's 30 days, 45 days, no return, final sell, all that good stuff. Um, that can change, right? That, you know, from, from a tech perspective, 
the technology should enable that. Um, but it's not exactly analogous, um, just because of the nuances of dealing with, you know, card present transactions versus card not present. Um, so I definitely don't envy, uh, you know, the, the, the environment you were in. However, I will say, um, you, you're right about the back office. It's the same as long as the system exposes the flexibility for people to model, uh, the process, um, through different workflows, right? Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, software really is just a workflow engine. Um, it's a state machine. And, you know, what it does, is it puts things in different states. Let's take a return flow, right? In most commerce, you know, uh, when there's a return, you have to request an authorization before sending it back. You can't just send something to a guy and call him and say, hey, I, I, I just returned your stuff. Re- refund my money. Like, uh, I, I don't know how to track this. It, you know, where'd you send it? Um, you know, that, that creates a problem. So think about returns. It's a perfect state machine, right? What you do is you have a return authorization that you get some code or confirmation or even a, a label to slap on a box to return a pair of shoes, let's say. Um, once it's received in the actual warehouse, they scan it and that updates the state, right? It says it's the return is received. Um, and then that effectively triggers downstream processes, which could be refunds. It could be, uh, you know, taking out a fee for reshelving, you know, application of the policies that you create. And so what we knew is we knew that the flows had to go through this workflow engine and it had to be, uh, flexible enough for people to be able to inject custom workflows in. But at the same time, uh, they need to be insulated around, let's say, a rules engine. I know I might be getting a little bit uh, geeky here, but mm-hmm. um, s- where where those rules can be applied and create automation so that you know we can get past what you know I'm effectively calling the the the, the manual uh, entry problem, right? And and the manual reconciliation problem. And as long as the system, the system facilitates that, in my mind, uh, it's it's quite flexible and agile. Um, now again, not all systems do that, but a return, you know, with that kind of flexibility where you can kind of create your own adventure as a retailer, um, is quite flexible. Yeah. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers forget not your keys, not your crypto software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, It's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. 
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Uh, I want to pry your, your brain a little bit more on marketplaces. Um, they, uh, I say is that the category of marketplaces has been a pretty exciting space for investors because, and founders, because it, when, once you hit marketplace traction and, and you get to scale, uh, some percentage lead over the, the others in the space, it, it kind of just snowballs and then you become the obvious place and then there's various entry and then it's difficult for other people to compete. You're like a local monopoly on whatever you're providing. Yep. And, and that, that carries with it by contrast, say, if you compare it to like pure SaaS companies, you know, if, 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 uh, most SaaS companies, if they had a million customers, that would be no more valuable to me in theory than if they had five. So the marketplaces have more to offer as they have more buyers and more sellers. It's where everything's happening. It's kind of the same, same reason why people cluster together in cities. It's like, there's just more yeah. electricity. Uh, do you feel like we are, if you were, if you were to track marketplace funding or opportunity, do you feel as the web has been around now, say modern technology, I, I think of like, you know, fast mobile, fast web, uh, at least in the U S for a good t- 10 or 12, 15 years. Um, I'm not talking about like early days, Amazon, where it was like dial up, but you have high speed, you trust the internet to do transactions, you throw in your credit card, no problem. Um, do you feel like they the were accelerating or slowing or flatlining on marketplaces on the number of companies founded, raising money, selling? What's your gut there? You're right. Yeah, I, great question. I, I think there's three fundamental challenges with the marketplace, right? Um, because the tech has been so inaccessible to, to uh, you know, it's unapproachable. It costs a lot of money to launch a marketplace, several years and several million dollars, um, even for the littlest ones. Um, you've got to have sophistication as a tech company to actually build a marketplace right now. This is pre-nautical, right? Um, then once you build your tech, then you have to operate it. You know, I think a lot of folks, the misnomer around marketplace is the IP uh, around building the marketplace is valuable. I I would argue it's commoditized because if you can't operate, it's completely worthless. You know, if you have the greatest tech in the world, but you can't figure out how to monetize it or, or commercialize or even go to market, it's not worth anything. A marketplace thrives on its network. You've got to be able to get buyers. You've got to curate the right sellers. You've got to offer the right products or services. And so... You know, uh, what I would say is I'm seeing a lot of, you know, marketplace activity, 
um, especially among brands that you just wouldn't expect, right? You know, I think in 2019, I met with probably 30 of the Fortune 500, um, talking to them about marketplaces and their problems, especially around payments specifically um, in fintech. Um, and the interesting part was that, you know, every one of them was building a marketplace because they were doing what Apple did really well. They were doing what Google did really well, right? Apple and Google uh, monetized their ecosystem. They monetized their core product by insulating it with, you know, a bunch of sellers that were going to help them. Whether, you know, if you look at the iPhone, right, um, there's this there's this program called Mage for iPhone, um, where folks can create wallets, you know, that bolt on or cases um, that, that, that actually uh, snap to the actual iPhone, right? That's a marketplace. They're, they're building out an ecosystem. Um, now, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing car companies uh, go in and say, wow, wait a minute, you know, these third-party parts that say Brembo brakes for a specific car are being sold on part ID, a marketplace. But, you know, let's say it's intended for a Porsche. Porsche makes nothing. They don't have a marketplace right now. You know, if they may have a marketplace, you know, instead of selling $20,000 poor ceramic brakes, they could maybe sell $10,000 Brembo brakes. Maybe they won't make, you know, the, the entire commission off that, but they'll make 10%, right? And uh, and so monetizing what I call uh, post-purchase monetization is a theme right now. Re-commerce is a theme. Do you think, do you think, uh, I've heard somebody articulate a convincing argument, which I'm not convinced of it, but that we're sort of uh, converging at, at uh, a number of marketplaces that can exist because the ideas of things that you would want is is fixed. And and I don't I don't subscribe to that entirely because kind of to your point, a there's almost I don't want to say limitless, but the the num like Porsche you wouldn't think of as a marketplace provider. But to your point, no. they could create they could create a marketplace of like uh, uh, you know, things that bolt on to the Porsche, like you, you could like, just like your exa exact ex analogy or example to the iPhone. Um, that wouldn't, to me, that's not an intuitive idea where you're like, oh, this is a, this is a group of buyers and a group of sellers that are struggling to connect. That's the classic way to identify a marketplace. They're, they're finding each other on Craigslist. And there's a great post out there that show, they take a picture of Craigslist snapshot and they'll show, you know, every <laughs> line is a market. The unbundling. Right, yeah, right. Un so it's yeah. giant unbundling that happens. And so you have, now you yeah. have all these companies that are out there that are sizable companies in each category of Craigslist, the ultimate marketplace, like the godfather of all of us, and that Craig, Uncle Craig. And then you have yeah. the, uh, the growth of those companies. But then it's like, okay, what happens next? It's like a splintering of that. You know, I, I can see each one of those marketplaces can be split up, buy and sell cars, for instance. That was a category in Craigslist. Now there's five, six, seven, like sizable marketplaces there. And then, okay, what do you do next? Well, you, you sub, sub filter that into buy and sell Jeeps. And there's a marketplace just for Jeeps. And then there'll be a market. Like I was talking to a guy that was literally building last week. He's, he's funding a company that is building, uh, that is allowing people to trade exotic off-road vehicles, like big Jeeps, yeah, yeah. classic Jeeps. And Absolutely. That's, that's the only, you go, you go just for that. And it's like, Maybe is that how it goes? Just it just keeps splitting into more and more marketplaces. I think it's even crazier than that. Um, and 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 what I would opine is that it, it's going to be kind of Web three o right, 
Web 2.0 is this unbundling concept where it's like, oh, there's this niche thing on, on Craigslist. It could be done better with someone being very purpose-built marketplace that just aggregates this demand out of nowhere, right? Like the Uber effect. Um, I believe in Web 3.0, right? It is mesh commerce, right? And so it's, it's you having a storefront and maybe Gap having a storefront or, you know, maybe uh, another brand like Nike having a storefront. And maybe syndicating catalogs across all of these platforms so that we get the benefit of increasing our average order value, right? Um, and so you cross listing stuff on different, uh, you know, other people's commerce systems, not just, uh, marketplaces. Um, because right now the idea is you run a storefront, you just list on Amazon or Walmart or Best Buy's marketplace, right? Um, I think the future is you have a storefront, but it's discoverable. By other storefronts, you know, and this is the way we built Nautical, uh, so that you know you can actually sell my goods, which is also on a Nautical storefront, um, and 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 it's effectively cross pollination, and you might make a commission, almost like an influencer, right? Uh, you know, where where instead of getting like traditional marketplace uh, a commission of like ten to fifteen percent, you might get two to three percent. But guess what? You didn't have to facilitate transaction. You may have collected the goods, uh, or actually uh, uh, collected the payment. But the disbursement goes to that other storefront, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think that's the future. I think, but that that's probably a couple of years out, maybe five plus. Um, to your point, I think there's so much more to be done um, in post-purchase monetization, especially for a lot of these marquee brands. Um, you know, I think Nike missed out on a real opportunity um, with reselling their shoes. You know, I mean, uh, there, there's a whole cottage industry, you know, StockX and, and other marketplaces that just sell, you know, these vintage uh, shoes and or, you know, coveted shoes that were that were maybe limited production or just loved by, you know, their their users. I know there's one particular brand uh, or one one particular model uh, uh, or uh, whatever you call it um, that I love from like two or three years ago that I can't get. If I if I see a pair, I, I'll pay a couple hundred extra for them, uh, which is nuts for me to even say that uh, if you knew me. As a fintech guy, that that's just crazy. But um, this exists, um, and you know, to your point, you're you're getting these curated, um, very interesting marketplaces. But I do think that there's so much more that brands can do that they're just not taking advantage of. If you think about the biggest of the big, the the trillion dollar companies right now, every single one of them did not start out as a marketplace. Amazon did not start out as a marketplace, right? Amazon started as a bookstore. And then what they wanted to do is say, well, let's see if we can get 3 million books. Well, they had to aggregate up a bunch of distributors or, you know, these books, publishers. And Bezos was just not satisfied with the SLA on shipping. And he said, we got to get it there in two days. So he started building warehouses and, and productizing logistics. And that's how he became a marketplace. You know, uh, uh, Amazon anyway, uh, was a journey. Um, to get there. It wasn't just overnight. He said, oh, I want to be a marketplace. That, that that really wasn't the thing. You know, you think about Apple. Apple was a computer company. Um, you know, it's, it's most notably known for, for, you know, having 20 million developers, lay developers that they're, that they're paying in their ecosystem because, you know, they're, they're, they're building apps, right? Um, for, for this massive machine, uh, that was built around, you know, the, the iOS, uh, ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, these are companies that have set the standard, the model for the future of not only commerce, but in my mind, the economy, right? Uh, and marketplaces are going to change the, 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 you know, economy in a very fundamental way. 
and 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 it takes a while for others to catch up. Do, do you feel like the a good definition, or feel free to add on to it or take away, but a marketplace as opposed to a merchant would be that a marketplace uh, doesn't produce or their their services that they're offering. They're, you know, in a, this is the debate now with YouTube and Spotify is like, are we the producer uh, or a publisher, I think is the word that gets thrown around, or are we or the producer? I think publisher versus producer, right? Are we making the the podcast, the music, the the service, or are we just a platform, a marketplace, so to speak, where the service or the product can pass through? And ultimately, it seems to me that the one important question to ask when figuring this answer out is: Does the mar- does the marketplace or the platform have the ability to take down uh, items that are? for sale or take down merchants entirely like nautical you could shut down one of your merchants say one of your merchants was selling you know something that was caught up in the social news and it's like hey ryan like you got you know racist you got uh porn smuggling terrorists on your platform and it's and and this marketplace is there and you're like bam shut them down you have the ability to do that so that would put you in a position to be a it would lean towards being a, a publisher in that sense. So you're not a moderator. Not, yeah. Moderator. Right. And yeah. Do you see that? Do you see this as a gray scale or do you see it as pretty black and white? The difference between publishing and uh, producing? Well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll use a secondary analogy as well. Right. You know, when, when we walked in the malls of the 1990s and two thousands, right. The mall itself didn't sell anything. They sold real estate and then right. each storefront was a tenant in there. Right. And they sold stuff. Now if the tenants sold stuff that were, you know, let's just say violated the law or, you know, uh, whatever they didn't pay their bill, they'd get kicked out. They'd get evicted. Now, you know, let's take Simon malls, for example. You would think Simon Malls doesn't really sell anything, but they actually do, right? They actually set up their own kiosk and they sell gift cards to be used in the mall. So technically they are selling something that can then be used within their own ecosystem, um, which of course boosts, uh, you know, their, 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 um, you know, ecosystem. Amazon's done the same, right? You know, Amazon is more or less a real estate, you know, like a mall and they have a bunch of sellers. And then on occasion, Amazon says, oh yeah, we're going to build this device and we're going to sell it on our own mall. Um, so, you know, the interesting part is I think we're in a blended world. I don't think there's pure play, uh, moderators or, you know, publishers versus distributors versus, you know, um, uh, content agnostic type, uh, uh plays because I think everybody kind of dog foods their own stuff. I mean, heck, even Reddit, uh, posts on their own, uh, uh board, right? Uh, Netflix is producing their own content now. Um, and, so, you know, it's interesting. And I would even argue that Netflix is to an extent a marketplace, right? They, they, they go out and get content. They bring in the buyers, you know, and, and, and effectively that the, you know, you have both, they're monetizing both sides of the equation, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, maybe that's not an answer, but, but I think it's gray area now. And I think it's incumbent on the platform to make sure that it resonates with the audience, you know, and I would say that, you know, lately Facebook's run afoul of this, right. Um, you know, uh, it's been a great platform in, in many ways where it's connected people and it's brought a lot of people back together or, you know, it's a, it's a way to share photos and, and updates about what's going on. 
But now it's become this this trove of you know political um, ideology and you know uh, a lot of divisiveness stuff has been as has been flooding on the platform. And so they're at a, they're at a seminal moment where they have to decide you know is this stuff that we need to start filtering because it doesn't it doesn't align with the marketplace we created, right? We created a social network that connects people in a way that makes the world a better place. And if there's stuff on there that's that's creating divisiveness and, you know, hate and ugliness, you know, they have to make a decision. Do they want that and just let it wild west and be a free form, you know, platform? Or are they going to get a little bit more heavy handed and say, no, we want to create this curated experience uh, for our customers, you know, the, the, the end users. Um, and I, I think that's every marketplaces and even social networks, um, decision, right. Um, about what they want to deliver to their customers I, or it'll evolve. I don't even think, I, I mean, this is, this is maybe a contrarian viewpoint on this, but I don't even think they have a choice to some degree. I think that the option to be completely wild west, uh, like libertarians say whatever you want, trade trade whatever you want. I don't think that that's an option because uh, here's what happens is that there's a certain number of people who take advantage of that. And even if you try to, as a platform, say, no, it's only going to be doxing or releasing you know, private information or it's going to be uh, uh, like threats of physical violence, even if you, you try to take that you know, hard line constitutional stance, it's, it's, it, it slips. It just, it slips because, uh, you introduce these edge cases where it's like, okay, what if, a, a another government wants to come in and buy ads for a political campaign, which is how that's, that was to me, that's where the, that's where the, the point was entered in. Like that was the leverage point that was like, oh, Facebook needs a, a shitload more moderation. And then it's like, once, once that dam was broken, then it's like, well, this person said mean things to me on Facebook. Let's, let's cancel him. Right. Like why, where, why yeah, not? Exactly. Where, where does this, it right? stop? Yeah. And so any, yeah. anybody who's mean, and it's not even now, it, it, it's not even mean. It's just anybody who doesn't believe what I believe. And so we're, we're at that point today, very much so. And I think that's not a Facebook thing. It's like a Twitter, Facebook, it's social media culture of the West thing. And it kind of slides into what do we, uh, what do we deem is appropriate to, to trade in terms of we're trading ideas, right? Like I'm, I'm selling you an idea when I'm putting it on Twitter and then you're either rejecting it or you're buying it and, and, and people want to sell ideas. That's the whole, that point to getting attention, uh, in a way, 100% they, they, they are, they are marketplaces in that idea. I don't think most people appreciate the, like cognitive complexity of trading ideas and, and the meme world that's going on, but there's a lot who do. And those people who do get it, they form specific organizations or companies with specific objectives to release memes into the atmosphere. Because what we believe in our minds ends up trickling down into, into reality. And that, uh, that that's not, I, I don't think Facebook can opt out of that. I, I don't think there's a line to say, do whatever you want here. Uh, because the the, the people, because here's what will happen. If there was a place like say whatever you want, do whatever you want, then there would be uh, extremes that would happen and people would just leave and they would look for another place that Absolutely. was a little bit more guarded. And it's like this game we play, you know, it's like a human pendulum swinging back and forth. Uh, but, but I find it fascinating to think about it like a marketplace of ideas. And, um, and Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll respectfully disagree in one area specifically and actually bring it back to 
the fact that you know we're we're on a fintech uh, 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 podcast or at least uh, uh, fintech focused is at the end of the day what you end up monetizing and what you end up allowing to be sold on that marketplace. And I'm not talking about the ideas. I'm talking about purchasing, right? So if you allow people to buy ads that are, you know, maybe divisive or you know maybe hateful or you know could 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 run afoul of you know. Uh, maybe what you stand for morally and or ethically, um, you know, then, then you are allowing that and, and you do have control over that. Now, I, I agree that you don't necessarily have control over freeform content, but you absolutely have control over what you, what ads you allow people to buy. And Google's exercised that authority recently, right? Is they've, they've effectively wholesale banned, um, you know, organizations from, from, you know, uh, advertising certain products, um, that either, are either deemed illegal or morally questionable or even gray area. Um, and they've kind of taken a stance on that. You know, is that good or bad? Well, that's, that's their decision, not, me, not necessarily ours. Let me ask you this. What do you think are the, the likely repercussions of a company like Google or Facebook or Twitter banning ads that is, that are uh, opposed to their incentives? So Google doesn't want, say, you know, a competitor to come on and advertise. They don't want people who believe in complete free speech to come on and advertise because then they're going to be incentivized to like, you know, there's a clashing of fundamental um, viewpoints. Like Google spends a lot, these companies spend a lot on lobbying politicians and that is effective in accomplishing the type of regulatory environment that they're, they thrive in, you know, it's just since you're a two person company, every founder is like, get a barrier to entry. And as you grow, the barrier to entry just becomes like spending money on lobbying and influencing policy and changing regulations. Mm -hmm. Do you see a predictable or foreseeable, uh, reaction to these companies canceling people who they, who who they uh, disagree with at a, a a level, a deeper level, or preventing advertisers that are trying to advertise um, on their platforms. I mean, t- t- for example, I think this is, I think this is common knowledge, or at least publicly acceptable, that they're they're pretty. Uh, Google and Facebook, at least they've been a uh, uh, what's the word? Not a cl- uh, accused. They've been accused of like deranking uh, organizations who lean right. And that is mm. probably a function of either the conscious or unconscious bias of the people who work in those companies. But it is kind of interesting to think about like, what, okay, what's, what comes next? Well, well uh, you make a great point. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, back uh, in the 19, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they called these companies utilities. You know, because uh, they had they had become so big and they dominated so much of the 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 public infrastructure that you know uh, the government needed to regulate them. Um, and again, as a techie, I hate throwing government regulation around. But at the end of the day, if you have a 70, 80, 90 percent monopoly on a certain segment and you're controlling the narrative and and things like that, you know, you absolutely need some level of oversight where. You know, you're not controlling the message uh, that 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 is favorable to you because I mean that's like a utility company saying, well, you know, every year I can jack you up ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month or whatever the story is because there's no options, you can't go anywhere. Um, and in in that case, you know, I I, I do think that there's there's a anti-competitive um, you know issue. Uh, you know, it, it it is interesting though 
because what they choose to monetize at the end of the day, again, it's always follow the money. Mm. Well, what they choose to monetize is really where you see their values lie. Um, and, uh, and some people pay a lot of money to try to get you to flex, um, on your policies and everything else. Um, and I think we saw that, you know, we saw that over the last couple of years, um, where there's been, you know, a public argument around, you know, what, what is moral and what is ethical when it comes to, you know, controlling that narrative. Um, so mm. totally. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Last point I want to add on this is I think they're, you know, they, they are these organizations, you can't look at them as like groups of people. They're their own intelligence as, you know, the CEO could leave, the entire exec team could leave, you come in and then the, the thing is going to act to preserve itself. Like the Google entity, absolutely corporate entity, name the company. And they're, they're fresh, they're, they're selling products to the, to the public and though, and the public wants different things at different points in time. So it's not just always better, faster, cheaper, sometimes like right now, more inclusive. And so that product of inclusivity and, uh, diversity is a, is a product that's being offered. So, you know, it's, it's topical. So I'll bring it up when Spotify said that they're going to keep Joe Rogan on they said that we're going to also give a hundred million dollars to, uh, diverse, uh, speakers, podcasters and that kind of thing. So, but, but I, I think that Spotify didn't do that out of the goodness of their heart. They said they ran in the internal algorithm and said, Hey, what is going to preserve Spotify the longest and help us flourish. And actually that decision to allocate resources to, to that group of people, uh, represents a, um, uh, it, it's it, it allows their customers to become more uh, dedicated to like buy the next subscription. Like ultimately, it's gonna. They believe could, may or may not be true. It probably is true that it's gonna boost the monthly subscription, like more revenue. Follow the money. To your point, mm-hmm. so I, I've, absolutely, I find it interesting how it, it's like it's that's not obvious. You know, it's not obvious spending a hundred million dollars on, you know, n- not, not the biggest podcasts that are out there, not the fastest growing podcasts. Um, so it's like society's a weird thing, man. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the economic engine, right? Yeah. You know, businesses want to preserve their, 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 their flow of cash. Right. And, you know, uh, in the Spotify case, you know, obviously they're, they're making a good amount of money from, from advertisers and everything else. And, you know, uh, there's, there's no shortage of, you know, let's just say radio style talk show hosts that have been controversial in the past. You know, I mean, let's think about Howard Stern and, and, and some others, you know, that, that, you know, really are, are very popular. Um, among, you know, uh, a good segment of people. And so, you know, the interesting part about, you know, uh, our society, especially like the podcast forums is people can tune in and listen to things that they want to hear. Um, and obviously they both have an audience, you know, uh, both of these gentlemen have an audience and, you know, it's obviously quite profitable, um, for organizations like Spotify. Um, I think it was, it was really, risk mitigation for them to, to channel this hundred million or whatever that number was into all of these podcasts, because what they're saying is, Hey, we're not taking sides. What we're saying is, you know, if you're offended by, you know, the fact that they've been wildly successful, fine, we'll start propping up others and see if they can also achieve the same level of success. You know, it's a very, you know, impartial agnostic kind of, uh, uh approach, um, that may placate, you know, the other side that's kind of griping and, 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 and saying, you know, Hey, I don't like the message. I, it doesn't resonate with me. Um, but I mean, I think that's, you know, 
well, here's maybe it's a uniquely U.S. issue. Well, here, here, here would be freedom of speech. <laughs> I feel like this would be this would be the, this would be the hardest thing for executives at these kind of companies to to uh, to to tread through. Which is that say I'm a, a Joe Rogan hater. You know, I I say he's yeah. a terrible person on Twitter. I bash him everywhere, and then I go and listen to him, and I listen to everything he says, and I like everything, but I I'm I'm denouncing him. So I'm I'm giving my attention, i.e., my money to. Yeah. Joe Rogan through Spotify, yet I'm saying ban him. And, and I think that's kind of the, it's like mass media. It's like, we, we hate mass media, but, but so many people tune in, so watch it. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a catch 22 in that sense. Um, absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like, where is it? Is there, is there a direction that things I, I like to look at things from like layer over this uh perspective of you have the the view of of companies competing and you have this uh, referee with the government in place and then we debate how, what the rules the referee should be allowed to do and then you have like the people who are really you I, I, here's here's one thing I'm, I'm thinking about it's I'm curious to hear your reaction to it I think one thing that'll become uh in the collective consciousness, much more so in the next five to 10 years is psychology, how the mind, how the mind works, not the brain. Like it's not a neural scientific perspective of fMRIs. Nope. It's like, yeah. what are, and also I think I started to hear people, podcasters on Twitter talk more about uh, philosophers and cognitive scientists like Carl Jung seems to be like rebubbling up where it's like, what is this collective subconscious that's going on? Because that is ultimately understanding that ultimately, uh, and th this is Jordan Peterson's rise to prominence, like a rocket ship is like, there's a, there's a huge need that we feel we as a populace to understand how, what is going on in our minds as we become fucking gods on earth creating bombs and rocket ships and stuff so <laughs> so i i think that that'll be no, really big you're, you're 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 spot on mike um you know psychology i think is 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 still a frontier that we're exploring you know i mean just as 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 the human condition um and you know the the interesting thing is, is that you know we were just talking about ad networks right marketplaces that are ad networks but um you know ads ads are a psychological manipulation yeah. You know, as babies, we, we, we are, you know, we are, uh, let's just say innately wired to manipulate our parents to get their attention, right? So we get more of whatever we need, sustenance or whatever. And, and so the interesting part is, you know, it, it, it becomes that, that fine line of what's ethical manipulation and what is not, right? Um, and, uh, there's a, we don't want to rabbit hole this too much, but, uh, um, there, there is a, there is a, you know, arm of psychology called NLP. You might want to look into it. It's called neuro linguistic programming, um, and it's very interesting because uh, you know a lot of organizations and even people have used this um, uh, to you know effectively steer people into you know their their causes. You know, a con artist is an excellent master, a wizardful master at at NLP, um, and and the idea is getting someone to do something they probably wouldn't normally do. Um, in, in, uh, you know, through these, uh, tactics that, you know, may seem at the surface level quite benign, but, uh, but, you know, it, in reality, the, the outcome is, uh, is quite disastrous or, or unethical. I, I think, I think there's, uh, th there's two elements adding on to that. 
one is getting people to do something that they wouldn't otherwise uh, do in a conscious, sedated, uh, conscious mind, like a relaxed, conversational mind that we're in now. And then two is, uh, is, is if the person doing it, if the con artist is, uh, is covering up their act. So they're playing dumb. Oh, I, I'm not doing anything. What are you talking about? And then the other is that they're, they're the thing that they're getting the person to do the, you know, ad that they're getting them to click on, uh, is, is bad for them. And the con artist knows that. So it's like that, that's, that's what like triggers, uh, hate, you know, if somebody is selling, uh, candy to a baby, porn to an addict, drugs to an addict, like we recognize that's malicious and that like, there's something inside our brains. It's like, you can't, what are you doing? You're making, you're making the world a worse place. Yeah, yeah, we, we just call that bad behavior, right? And by the way, I don't want to villainize an, uh, uh, NLP. NLP and it's right. No, that's clear. You know, again, there's always a good side and a bad side, right? Totally. It's called the 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 dark side and the good side. But uh, but NLP, you know, if used appropriately and it benefits the person, you know, uh, uh, can be quite powerful to get messages across. I mean, heck, totally. you know, the best presenters in the world, you know, uh, use NLP in a way um, that that gets buy in right for projects for you know their causes um politicians use it you know to an extent right but then there's again the bad actors who also use it and so again you know we as as you know higher level uh uh you know species um you know we have this this moral conundrum uh where we have to act um you know with respect to an ethical contract uh, construct right the social contract that we've created with society and, you know, again, to your point, you're judging them and saying, you know, hey, that's bad behavior or it's not bad behavior, right? Um, to me, it's, it, it's really about, you know, understanding that we have this gift of fire, you know, whether it's psychology is our tool set, whether it's technology is our school set or, or skill set, um, whether it's speaking, you know, uh, uh, is our skill set um, or, or business or whatever that, you know, your, your secret sauce is, Um we we have to realize that you know we've we've been given that and in the immortal words of I guess Uncle Ben in, in Spider Man is with great power comes great responsibility right and and what he meant by that was you know you have a an moral and ethical obligation to your so- social contract uh, that you've established with society and you have to honor that you know and that that's what Uncle Ben was saying yeah and what what happens is if if you if you don't go down these rabbit holes and you don't explore the depths of the the foundational or the substantial viewpoints that you have and like why we have and really go down and you're, you're so far down this rabbit hole. You're like, what am I doing here? But then sometimes you hit bedrock and you're like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a philosophical line that I'm not going to cross. Then you can come all the way up the chain and you can say, okay, what's our KYC policy? Like Tuesday at 2 PM. Are we going (laughs) to, are we going to allow people to come in? Like, what do we feel about gambling? And it's like, I don't know, man. Like, what is gambling? Is gambling wrong? Like, let's go. Then you're like back down. And it's, it's hard to make good. It, here's how I'd say this. It's, it's, it, you don't have the ammunition or the tool set to make really, uh, challenging, abstract, important decisions, either in a company or a government. If you haven't thought carefully about what's really going on. Uh, under the hood, like gambling is a good one because that's com- that's a marketplace. In fact, there was a, a guy interviewed a couple of weeks ago who's building a crypto marketing platform marketplace, yep. and uh, and it's like, well, is that bad? Because it's certainly been labeled bad 
as society has made it illegal and, and only in Vegas and then not too much, uh, because you certainly see like, like drugs, you see the, the pathway to a hellish life. Like I, I lose everything, I yeah. gamble it all, I, I'm homeless and that kind of thing. And that, that's, that, that's why it's so important. And I'm like, okay, sanctions, should we be, countries aren't allowed to trade with each other. People are on this bad list. Um, you know, there are certain risk categories for different people. And uh, KYC is interesting because that's where that's where the, the rubber meets the road on, on some degrees, because companies have the freedom. It, it, the, they have a it's not like black and white because there's so many you have no. to create this different, no, different tier very gray areas aml yep. policy and there's all these bs bank secrecy act laws and the u.s after 9-11 has taken like it's been an explosion of uh rules and regulations on tracking people and uh yeah i i, I want to ask you do you have particular areas within fintech that you that come to mind when you think of the fintech nerd inside is there like certain areas of fintech that you are particularly excited about you know i i uh, I, I would say one i'm particularly proud about you know i i, I saw a stat the other day that 92 uh, percent of all payments right now are being done by apple pay so you know uh uh you know all of my uh um you know i guess alum that that launched apple pay uh uh you know back in my days at apple that, that that's awesome to see it proliferate. You know, I, I do think that there was a, there was a pandemic effect on it. You know, people just not wanting to pull out their cards and dip and do, do all this other stuff. Um, but, uh, but that's really cool. To Wait, see. is that, so, is that, I love that 92% of all in-person, uh, credit card payments are done through Apple pay. No, no. Um, uh, I believe it's 92% of all mobile payments um are uh it was a i believe a study by discover card um if you type up uh percentage of mobile payments by uh you know uh i guess mobile wallet oh um, so of all the mobile wallets um uh apple pay is, is is really dominating um the uh uh the the space and and part of that is we as a team you know apple um we made security and and trust um, the absolute most important thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, from the provisioning all the way to, you know, execution of the transaction, um, that, that was very, very important to us. Um, and privacy, you know, we, 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 we wanted to make sure that, you know, to an extent, um, you were shielded from, you know, predatory tracking and, and, and those kinds of things. So <clears throat> I, uh, I, I'm so curious to get your thoughts on this. You were there. I think you were there in 2014 to 16. I was. You were 14 there. Through 16, I think that yeah. was right after when Edward Snowden released all the uh, classified documents and, and these big companies. Uh, I forget how Apple was involved, but I know that there was like um, a lot with the Verizon and AT&T where they're pulling out metadata. Um has there been any publicly released information uh, that you're aware of about big tech companies having these backdoor um, access points th that they can access? Or is that is it typically now, do you feel like we're at a point where the public knows what's going on inside big these big tech companies? Or do you still think there's a lot behind the scenes that people aren't aware of? Yeah, to be, to be candid, I mean, I... Uh, and, I wouldn't be able to say right. explicitly around Apple, but I can say this, I can say this, you know, um, Apple took a position, 
more or less uh, a very unpopular one. Uh, I think uh, right around 2015, uh, there was a terrorist attack in, you know, uh, L.A., um, you know, uh, two two very bad actors you know, killed a lot of people. And uh, the law enforcement, you know, kind of postured and said they want Apple to come and unlock a phone. Um, you know, the challenge is uh, if you create a backdoor as a tech company, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but hackers are much more crafty than law enforcement. Yeah. They're usually about three to five years ahead of law enforcement. So if there's a backdoor, the hackers will find it way before the law enforcement can, you know, will, will be able to use it um, in a constructive way. And so, you know, as much as, you know, I was angry about, you know, of course, the terrorist attack, and I wanted to see, uh, you know, the, the victims and their families um, get justice, I also was very concerned about the privacy implications of unlocking that phone or forcing a tech company to do that. And by the way, you know, I don't even know if that was possible because, you know, at that time, the way, the way it was working was those encryption keys were actually on the phone. They weren't stored in the cloud. They weren't, you know, they weren't stored anywhere else. They were actually on the phone. And so when you lock your phone with the keys and everything else and, and your pin code, you know, you, it's stored there. And that's probably one of the best security mechanisms uh, in the world is it's not stored anywhere else. So, you know, they can't unlock. Did they? Um, did Apple? Un- was how did that play out? Well, the FBI, I think, uh, uh, hired a security firm, and eventually, you know, somehow the security firm was able to unlock the phone. But you know, it may have been because it was a weak password or, or those kinds of things. You know, again, I can't speculate on on how it happened, but uh, that that's that's what I would suspect mm. um, happened. Is it was some security firm and completely independent yep. of you know any of the big tech it wasn't companies. apple though they um didn't come out and do it yeah mm. yeah i'm not sure if it was Mac- uh, mcafee or, or or some affiliated company like that that had had helped them out um and when i say mcafee not the security company but the actual gentleman at the time uh i think he had a couple of different companies um that, that guy's uh, wild that he had so <laughs> i can get that he was a wild guy <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I give Apple credit though. I mean, that, that's such a, they're unique, I think in the big tech companies where they, they really do seem to be genuinely emphasizing it all the way down to their DNA security and privacy. And I think that's, it's like privacy, super important. Dude, like I, I just agree, you know, like there's going to be terrible people that do terrible things, but we also need a space that you can just like the black box of your mind where you can just keep things and, and not have them be, you know, surveyed or, or overlooked or taken at any point. I think it's probably well, critical you know, insanity. My, my, yeah, my, my, my thing was, uh, you know, I think Tim issued a note. Uh, he, he wrote a letter, an open letter to customers explaining why Apple had took the position back in 2015. It's still published. I mean, you can, you can actually look at that, um, that uh, letter. Uh, it's still on the Apple website. Um, I think I pulled it up the other day for some odd reason. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, this is the problem. Uh, it sounds great at the time to assist, you know, an organization to actually unlock it. But what happens when a bad actor infiltrates, you know, the government or, you know, they, they overstep their, you know, bounds and they start going after innocent people? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think, uh, a, a very famous billionaire, I won't quote him because uh, I can't exactly attribute the uh, credit to him is they said, you know, if you tell someone for two weeks, if you put a tail on someone for two weeks by law enforcement, they'll arrest them for something. You know, we have so many laws on the books that are somewhat nonsensical that, yes, you know, you can get arrested for, 
You know, I mean, heck, if law enforcement interviews you today and you say, yeah, this is what happened. And then a week later, they come back and they interview you for the same thing. And you say, well, no, it wasn't a red car, it was a blue car. You just lied to them. Uh, you know, in their mind, they could put you in jail for several years. You know, the, the absurdity of that is is just astronomical because, you know, the, the, the brain of the human memory doesn't remember things precisely. And yet, you know, the way the law is written is if you say one thing and then two months later you say an exact opposite thing or it's slightly off, they can arrest you and put you in jail for that. You know, and, and, and I'm sorry. I mean, if you ask me, uh, what color my socks are. I can't tell you without looking at them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I put them on less than eight hours ago, yeah. right? Um, uh, so, you know, I think it's a slippery slope. Um, again, I don't want to empower bad bad folks, um, but we also have to protect Yeah, and I think that's so, I mean, I just feel like a safe company, if a company makes a safe and you use the safe and you lock up something and then you go, you know, do something terrible, it's not that you wouldn't point to the safe company and say, hey, get this open. You're just like, we sell safes. We don't sell master keys for everyone. And otherwise we'd be somebody break in and take all the keys and take all the safes. But uh, yeah, interesting, man. I really appreciate you going down different rabbit holes. Congrats on on all the progress i really admire the the mission with creating the marketplace platform as a service uh yeah. it's fantastic and and a huge market uh you guys raised a couple million is there anything that you're looking for that's top of mind for you guys now or are you, are you writing are you online mention if you are yeah you know we're 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 really evangelizing mm-hmm. um because yeah, you know you've been through the marketplace journey you've built it from the ground up it is challenging and so, you know, what I would do is, is put a call out to everybody who has that marketplace idea, you know, don't build the infrastructure, you know, like when you're building a house, you don't care about the plumbing, you don't care about the foundation, what you generally care about is the exterior, right? The facade that people see every day, the, the number of bedrooms, right? What those appointments are in those bedrooms. You know, I would argue that Nautical provides that foundation that you don't have to worry about, right? connecting up the payment providers, uh, you know, connecting up the, the marketing uh, uh, platforms like Clavio and MailChimp, right? Um, that's all commoditized. Focus on the buyer experience, right? Operationalize getting vendors on, curate the right experience. You know, that's what marketplace operators really should focus on. It's funny because, you know, if you talk to investors and you went in front of them and said, hey, I'm going to launch the next Toys R Us, and by the way, I'm going to take $5 million of your money and I'm going to build a new commerce platform. They'd say, wait, why would you do that? You just go get Magento or go get Shopify or go get big commerce. Why, why would you do that? Well, right now, there's no good options with a marketplace. And that's what marketplace providers or, or, or operators do right now is they go to YC or they go to these big uh, VC firms and they say, hey, I need $5 million because I've got to spend two years building a marketplace platform before I even validate my business model. Yeah. You know? And most investors would tell that Toys R Us, who's trying to create, you know, Shopify and not productize it, of course, um, you know, no, go fly a kite. You know, we, we might back the operational part of the business, but we are not going to back you trying to be a tech company. Um, and so, you know, I would hope that, you know, that message gets out to, you know, not only founders, um, but also investors that, you know, uh, there is a platform for folks to validate their business model very quickly. And, you know, there is still IP to be had, you know, uh, intellectual property um, in the buyer experience, right? And the workflow orchestration. 
but the, the you know the engine the marketplace engine is a commodity mm. and uh, you know i'd encourage folks to to look at nautical um, as an enabling uh, or a marketplace infrastructure enablement play for them keep crushing it man i love what you're doing and i uh, hope you have it back on someday awesome excellent mike take care ryan thank you Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.